The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, deals on the Godstalker Chronicles, plus we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirod. This week, we bring you PC Hodgel in conversation with DJ Butler about Deathless Gods, the latest installment in her Kinserath series. But first, the news. This month, to celebrate the release of Deathless Gods, we're offering up deals on all of PC Hodgel's past Kinserath novels. For the month of October, save $1 on Godstock, Dark of the Moon, Seeker's Mask, To Ride a Rathorn, Bound in Blood, Honor's Paradox, The Sea of Time, The Gates of Tagmeth, and By Demons Possessed. These discounts are good wherever Bane ebooks are sold, and the offer expires October 31st at midnight. And that's it for the news. Hello, this is uh, DJ Dave Butler. I'm here with PC Hodgel to talk about her new novel, Deathless Gods. It's out now in, um, let's see, PC, I should know this. Is Am I right to think it's in hardcover? I think it's in trade paperback and then in mass paperback. Okay. Uh, it's out now in uh, trade paperback and all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free when you buy them at Bain.com, uh, of course, as always. <clears throat> uh, PC Hodgel can't remember a time when she wasn't passionately interested in science fiction and fantasy. She sold stories to such anthologies as Berkeley Showcase, Elsewhere 3 and Imaginary Lands, and has also published 10 novels. Godstock and Dark of the Moon, uh, the novels included in the Godstocker Chronicles, begin her critically praised fantasy saga, which is concerned not only with high adventure, but also with questions of personal identity, religion, politics, honor, and arboreal art. Sorry, arboreal drift. Uh, <laughs> although arboreal art sounds okay. Um, mm. and, and I should say the 10 novels are all in one sequence, right? The, so Deathless Gods is the 10th novel of that sequence. Yes. Um, PC earned her doctorate at the University of Minnesota with a dissertation on Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe and is a graduate of both Clarion and the Milford Writers Workshop. Uh, now retired, she was a lecturer at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh in modern literature and composition and teaches an audio cassette based course on science fiction and fantasy for the University of Minnesota. PC lives in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in a 19th century wood framed house, which has been in her family for generations. In addition to writing and teaching, she attends science fiction conventions, collects yarn, knits, embroiders, raises cats, and makes her own Christmas cards. Uh, PC, uh, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Thank you. I'm very interested in this dissertation on Ivanhoe, I have to tell you. Um, um, be because, of course, right, because, of course, um, the, uh, uh, the saga of the Kenkiroth, they, these are chivalric novels. They're about mounted warriors. Um, 
So, so I guess my first question is, you know, uh, you know, how 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 much of uh, your career was Ivanhoe? I mean, is this were you sort of an Ivanhoe focus, or was did that get you in the door to the PhD game, and then you taught modern literature generally, or are you an Ivanhoe scholar? Well, I did my dissertation on it. Um, I started with 19th century English novels, mm. and when it came time for me to write a dissertation, uh, I was fond of Ivanhoe. Um, I was fond of Scott, and I was very struck by his comment that when you tried to understand the Middle Ages, you looked to romance for the way people thought, and history for the way people acted, which struck me as very strange. That's very interesting. Um, so, uh, so, so, okay. So one of the thoughts I've been kind of having is studying Ivanhoe is on the one hand studying uh, like a Regency era novel, right? Or I'm not sure what year it was published. Maybe it's early Victorian. Um, yes. And on the other hand, you got to kind of be a medievalist. Um and, and so, uh, and, and you've kind of already put that, that sort of split dichotomy uh, in front of us here. On, on the one hand, you know, what are they thinking? Look to the romances. Uh, what do they do? Look to the annals. Uh, I like that very much. Um, uh, yeah, it was very much a time when people were first beginning to look at the Middle Ages as something interest, interesting. And they really did what Scott said. They looked at the romances and thought, hey, this is the way chivalric knights behaved. Uh, and yet here's history where you've got people running around with swords, slashing each other and laughing maniacally. So it was really kind of, okay, uh, how, does, how does one imagine the Middle Ages? I was writing fantasy at that point, and I was writing in a medi medieval setting. So I was very interested in how this concept came to be. That's very interesting. Um, so the fantasy, now I know you've got uh, at least one collection of short stories too. So your 10 novels are in one sequence. Are the short stories in the same setting as well? They are, but some of them are set in worlds that I since have abandoned. Mm -hmm. I passed beyond them. I think the first one I wrote was set in a futuristic university, mm -hmm. uh, which obviously has nothing to do with what, where it went afterward, but it was where my imagination went at that point. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, that, sorts, that sort of opens the door to seeing what the Chronicles of the Kenkiroth are like, right? It is, it is, it is a big series, but it's also a multi-world series, right? With a background that's even more um, multi-world. Very, uh, very epic um, in scope. Yes. Um, so what got you into writing fantasy then? You were writing fantasy, I think I hear you say, before you got your PhD in literature, right? So you were writing fantasy at that point already. What started uh, you Yes, I started uh, between... Well, I, I fantasized ever since I was a child, basically, reading fantasy novels, 
uh, creating this world, but I didn't really start to write about it until between college and graduate school. At that point, I took off a year. I wrote Godstock, which was the first of the novels. Mm -hmm. And then I was sort of committed. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so Godstock, you've had several publishers, right? But I think at this point, uh, at least in ebook format, the books are all avail available from Bain. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, the vicissitudes of sci-fi and fantasy publishing mean that sometimes publishers cease to exist. Yeah, frequently. Frequently even. <laughs> That's right, frequently. Um, no, interesting. Okay. So uh, I'm interested in, in, you know, you say I was committed, right? I mean, you, you, you went for the whole hog. You didn't, you know, in defiance of whatever advice someone would give you from like the, uh, you know, from the speaker's uh, podium at a sci-fi convention, you know, write a book that can be standalone, but expandable if it does well, right? You said, I'm going to write a big series. Um, who, who are your, who do you think your, uh, your models were? What, what do you think was pushing you into that large scope? Well, um, it started out with the people that I read, uh, which frequently were major series writers. Um, Fritz Leiber was my first inspiration, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, although he split it up into stories, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, I was encouraged when I went to Clarion and I was told that I had actually something I could say about this, that I actually had my hands on something that would work, that had legs. And I just, I kept going. Now, when was that? When did you go to the writer's workshop? Was that as an undergraduate or was that later once you were already basically writing? That was between college and graduate school. Hmm. So right as you were writing the first novel. Uh, yes, de definitely. Yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations on, uh, on your success. Ten books. I should note ten books is not the end. Um. Uh, do you have and want to share a sense of, of, of how close we are to the end? Is that something you're interested in talking about? I don't want to push you into any spoilers you don't want to give. I can certainly talk about it to the extent that I can. Mm. Uh, my sense is that there's one more. Mm. I tried very much with death, Deathless Gods to tie up as many loose ends as I could, but I couldn't obviously finish everything. So I'm hoping that the 11th will at least finish the series to the extent that people will be able to let out a breath and say, oh, okay, this author isn't going to die on us. <laughs> um, on the other hand, I know that the story goes on from there. So if at that point I can continue writing about it, fine. But if not, I don't have to cut my throat. Well, um, very, uh, very exciting. So, uh, so this is a big story, and it's a big story well before we get to book 10. In fact, I think it's a big story well before we get to book one. 
Yes. So, um, so I wonder, um, you know, for, for a new reader, um, uh, you certainly could buy Deathless Gods and, uh, and attempt uh, uh, that as your entry point. Uh, but again, also Godstock. Um, let's see, is it available? Is it uh, available as its own ebook or is it bound together with book two? Seems like maybe it was book two and book one together. I think that's what Bain has done recently. It yeah. might be available separately in ebook, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Uh, they have published the first couple is as omnibuses. Right, right. So, um, uh, so you can uh, jump into book 11 or, um, hey, you can jump into book one knowing you've got, uh, sorry, you can jump into book 10. There is no book 11 yet. Um, I'm working on it. Yeah, you could jump into book one and, and, and know that you've got 10 novels and, and at least an 11th ahead of you. So, um, so PC, maybe tell us about some of the, some of the epic multi-world, many thousands of year background of the story. What, what kind of setting is this? What's going on? Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, it's a complicated story. <laughs> uh, To give you the short version as much as I can, we're talking about a chain of creation in which there are multiple universes connected by threshold worlds. And into this has come an entity called Paramal Darkling, which is something like a cancer on reality or a type of entropy or something that's and the antithesis of reality. It's working its way, it's eating its way up the chain. At some point, fairly close to the beginning, one of the it is is it's living on the um the worlds and universes that it conquers uh, which are embodied by their gods, who are manifestations of the people there that who believe in them. So the, the gods become forms of belief and become sources of energy. Uh, one of these gods puts together the three people of the Kensarath, the Highborn, the Kendar, and the Arankan. Uh, and then apparently just disappears. So there they are. They've been the, the chosen people, but they don't know what's going on because they're being beaten. And they are chased down the chain of creation from world to world, from universe to universe, by Paramal Darkling, um, trying to hang on to their mission, uh, which is very difficult. By the time we get to the stories that I'm writing about, they have come basically to the end of the chain of creation. Um, if they can't hang on to this world, that's it. Reality, as they understand it, is going to disappear. Yeah. Uh, they have been holding on to the hope that their God will return to them in the form of Three people known as the Tyridon, who are that which creates, that which destroys, that which preserves. 
Um, and these people, and they finally, they've almost given up on expecting these people to show up. Um, at this point, they have finally shown up, but they are not really believed in. Yeah. So my main heroine, James, is that which destroys, or is becoming that which destroys. Her brother is that which creates, her, their cousin is that which preserves, and they have a lot of trouble coming to grips with these roles that they are being thrust upon. Yeah. The, uh, so, uh, so I apologize for the glibness of the comparison, but it's, so it's, it's all, almost like uh, the never ending story, but as an epic, right? There's like a sort of impersonal cancer destroying everything. And you've got, you know, a company of knights retreating world to world, uh, losing all the time. Um, waiting for this prophesied triune figure to manifest manifest that sounds about right but i don't really know the ever and never-ending story very well so i don't know if, to what extent i i don't think i i drew from it particularly yeah yeah no 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 yeah no insinuation to that uh effect um so you talk about the three uh, groups of the Kenserath, so the highborn, and these are uh, Jame and her, her um, the other two um, uh, members who are becoming that which preserves and that which creates. Yes. Right? And they're all family. Um, and they're all highborn. So we should think about this like uh, your medieval, uh, you know, feudal classes, right? The landholding uh classes they are that they are bound to the other people are bound to them as in the feudal system mm -hmm. but it's becoming clear that this is not working that is destroying them mm -hmm. so this bondage has to be broken and that's what's coming up in the in the 11th novel 11 okay okay that's very interesting so uh, the Kendar are sort of like the craftsmen or the, or the, the, the freeborn, maybe sort of the gilded classes? Well, something like that. They, they're also the, well, yes, they are the, the craftsmen, they're the warriors, they're the, they're the basic foundation of the society, whatever the highborn think. The yeah. Kendar are really it. Sure, sure. Um. And then the uh, the Aaron Ken, right? Yes, who are uh, a cast of kind of judges uh, among them. Yes. So, um, and the book has a, a a delightful array of its own vocabulary. There's some really deep world building, and I actually have to ask you one question about that. One question. I have a guess. It might be totally wrong, but I'd be I'd be delighted if I'm right and. If I'm wrong, it's an interesting coincidence. So, um, so the uh, the the eleventh, the tenth novels, sorry, opens with the uh, the uh, the assembly of the the Randons, okay, and uh, they've just come from another world battle, and so they are you know counting heads and doing all the sort of post battle things you do, and the Randon Randon is the name for these. Um, the military 
class, the upper, you know, um, I, I don't know. Let's see. The Randons include Kendar, right? It, it's, it's, it's basically yes. everyone who fights. It's anybody who wants to be qualified as a warrior. Okay. As an officer. Okay. So I have this guess about where that word might have come from. And you might say, Dave, you are smoking crack. I made it up. But if so, this is a funny coincidence because here's my guess. Okay. So our English word random comes from medieval French. And a la randon was an adverbial phrase to describe a nightly charge. And the idea that that became random was like, hey, two rows of knights charging at each other. Who's going to win? I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and so I wondered if you, if you deliberately chose the word random from that context and me, and it means something like mounted warrior or someone who charges on a horse. Am I, am I totally out of, out of field here? Well, I mean, they do, but I never heard that particular connection before. So I, so I think Jung would call this synchronicity. <laughs> or, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard would say your ancestor spoke medieval French. And so it came to you. Um, something like that. Something like that. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so, so let's talk about the three. So there's Jame, uh, which is uh, Jamethiel, right? Jamethiel, uh, yes. Jamethiel. Okay. Tell us about her and then let's explore um, the rest of the Trinity. Okay. Well, up yet. what about her? Um, she is, she and her brother and her cousin are the last pure-born Kenorth of this particular society. Uh, she, her father was the High Lord. He screwed up badly uh, and got exiled. Um, he also formed a relationship with a previous highborn lady, uh, Jamethiel Dreamweaver, uh, who was the, the consort of um, Geridon who was the master, who was the betrayer of their people. Um, so he, he had children with her, James and Tori. And he is really ups he was really upset because James turned out to be one of the special people who could be a potential Tyridon. She was a Shawnir. Uh, he drove her out. He drove her into the master's house in Paramol Darkling, which is where she grew up, which I have a lot of trouble talking about because I can't quite wrap my mind around it. Um, she comes out of that as a abused child, basically. Um, is trying very hard to rejoin her own people, is trying to rejoin her brother, um, at the same time as she, she begins, begins to realize that she is one of the Tyridon, she is that which destroys, and she's scared to death 
that she's going to destroy the wrong things. Yeah. Um, so when she's a warrior, right? She's a she's a she's a knight. Uh, the Randons are also they have a martial art which you um, I think very charmingly use kind of elemental. Um, you know. Oh rather- yes, yes. Uh, earth moving, fire leaping, fire uh, wind blowing, earth moving. Yeah, is my basic understanding of the martial arts in my limited experience with them it seemed to me to be that would be the way one could see them Uh, and she is she has been trained in this and she goes on to the randon college because her brother can't figure out what to do with her when she turns up back with her own people um he's scared to death of her because she's a shanier um but he because he ends up declaring her his heir um, in order to basically get her out of his hands and out of the women's world, which has been a terrible experience for her. Um, yeah. I'm not quite sure where to go with that. Uh, so that's, so that's interesting. So, okay. So before we talk about Tori, the brother, twin brother, right? Twin brother. Yes. Um, a couple of questions on on um, uh, on on Jane. So, uh, what is a shanir? What does that mean? Um, the highborn have a tendency to have these sort of mutant versions that are connected with one of the three faces of God: creation, preservation, destruction. Um. This has been going on for a long time. They've been trying, the women, the highborn women, have actually been trying to breed this, these three people that they expect to take over the the godship. Um, everybody else is scared to death of them. Uh And each one of them tends to be, as I said, aligned to one of these three faces of God. Um, But they only really work if they're purebred Knorth. Mm -hmm. And at this point, they've only got three purebred Knorth left, although not everybody realizes that. Right, because the cousin is a little secret at first. It's secret. It's not clear. For a lot of the series, I didn't know it at first that he was actually a someone who had, whose contract had been signed and and sealed, and he was legitimate. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so shades of Dune there a little bit. Um, again, not suggesting you borrowed from Dune, but like there's a lot of intersecting space with. Some gross, really great books and movies out there. There's a there's a there's a breeding program. Our, our salvation does not depend on battles because we never win. We're not going to win. Our 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 salvation, if it comes, is going to come as a result of the birth of uh, these three, uh, uh, the Pterodon, right? Um, so there, there's a breeding program. 
Um, I, I think of uh, Jame a little bit as kind of like a kind of like a Knights in Armor Jessica Jones. This may not resonate with you. It's one of the Marvel series. I don't know if you're a Marvel. Unit. I am, but I'm not sure who Jessica Jones is. Oh, she had a couple of seasons um, on, uh, hasn't had a movie yet. A couple of seasons on, uh, I mean, I guess I watched them on Netflix. Um, but she's, uh, she is, uh, she's, a, she's an immensely powerful fighter who's also sort of a deeply wounded person. Comes from some uh, a background of being abused by a by a sort of a, a Svengali with mental powers who made her his slave for some years, right? Oh, okay. She has all this kind of wrath and physical power, and then to try and restrain that, has a code, right? Um, now it's not a very knightly code. She's a PI in Hell's Kitchen in New York, right? But <laughs> but she's basically you know going to be on the side of the good guys. Um, J- Jane, a little reminiscent of that character, I think, which is which is a good thing. That sounds like it. I it's been a long time since I read Marvel comics. Mm-hmm. I have a collection of them, uh, but I stopped at some point, so mm-hmm. I'm not up to date. Yeah, yeah, yep. So, um, okay, so so uh, uh, so Jane has a twin brother, Tori. Uh, which is Torison, who by book 10 is known as Torison Blacklord, right? Um, now, do they realize that he is a Shannir at birth also, or do they not realize that about him? Uh, he doesn't realize it about himself for a long time. He was taught by his father to fear the Shannir, to hate the Shannir, which is one reason why he has really contradictory feelings about his sister who he knows is Shanier because his father threw her out because she was. Um, By this point in the story, he does know that he is, he's trying to come to grips with it. Uh, He's trying to become that which creates, um, which is rather hard even for me because being that which destroys is such a, potent force and yet how do you make creation a potent force and how does it interact with destruction and preservation so there are a lot of things that i have not myself really worked out here i just know that they are yeah so, and, and does the fact of them being Shawnee, so this marks them for a possible transformation, but that doesn't actually in itself give them any abilities, right? Well, it does when they become the actual three aspects of God. Um, it may not be all the time. It might simply be one morning you wake up and your bedclothes are shredded and you think, oh, bugger uh something needs to be destroyed someplace i have to go and find out what's going on um interesting it's quite possible that that those points they stop aging so they are potentially immortal Mm -hmm. but at the same time they're trying to hold on to a regular life yeah um i mean as regular as it can be when you are 
a retreating military class slowly battling a cosmic force across worlds and, and doing mercenary contracts in the off season. <laughs> Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So those are the twins. Uh, and Tori is, um, and maybe this has to do with his being, you know, uh, maybe his being one of the last three to North is basically correlated with this, but he's sort of the leader of the highborn, right? Uh, yes. most, most times the other families sort of defer to him um, at least loosely. They do, as it comes to the 11th novel, uh, the bigger houses are starting to say, hey, we have more people, we have more power, we should be in control. Yeah. And he, unfortunately, is, a, is the head of a very small house, actually, because it's been decimated over the millennia. Yeah. Yeah, that is a plot that at least begins in book 10 where you start to hear rumors of other houses saying, what about something like a per capita vote? Yeah, very uh, much so. Yeah. It's kind of shades of 1784. It's interesting. Uh, um, interesting to read that subplot. Um, okay, so the third character is Kindry, the, the third of these, uh, uh, of these three aspects of God, right? Uh, or the yes. third Shanir. Uh, who must be the uh, power that preserves. Uh, Kindry is highborn, um, but I, I think at the opening of the series, they don't know he's a cousin. Is that right? They Yes. Okay. So at some point they, they find out he's a cousin and at some point they find out um, that he's a Shanir also. Yes. Um, and whereas Tori and uh, um, Jame are sort of knights, um, Jame maybe more in like the uh, warrior aspect and Tori maybe more in the kind of rule aspect. Uh -huh. um, uh, Kindry's a healer, right? Yes. So, uh, so, so how do we meet, uh, how do we meet Kindry? What, what does, uh, what does the power to preserve? Uh, what is, what does that do? Well, He's still trying to find that out to some extent. Uh, what he does is that he can interact with the soulscape of individuals and heal them by manipulating the way that they see themselves in an almost Jungian fashion. Mm -hmm. um, he's been doing this his whole life. He could do it him to himself to some extent. So he's, while he looks very fragile, he actually has a lot more endurance than the other two do. Um, basically, he has to decide what needs to be preserved in the society. It's a very flawed society. Um, something has to be broken. That's James' position. Torison's is, well, something has to be created to take its place. Kindry has to decide what is worth saving. Hmm. That's interesting. So uh, your, your comparison to Jung is interesting. It suggests that Kindry's healing is um, maybe about healing psychic wounds 
as much as about healing any other kind of injury. Very much so. Yeah. Both, both, it goes both ways. It depends on what afflicts you. Yep. Uh, and of course they have the soulscape. Uh, they have the, each person has a soul image, which is the way that you see yourself and any injury to you is reflected in your soul image. Um, I could say, this is my, my old house. This is where I lived all my life. If there's something wrong with the foundation, then there's something wrong with my foundation. Yeah. And I deal with one by trying to deal with the other. Yeah. Very, um, very interesting. Um, all right. So we won't, uh, we won't run over the plot of the first nine books. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, it'd be delightful for me. Uh, it might take some time. Um, so uh, uh, book uh, 10 begins with the assembly of the Randons. And then in a sense, it looks like to some degree, business is going to go back to normal. Um, and that means rule for Torreson. And Kindery is kind of with Torreson and the, the, the current lands of the Kenserath. Um, and what it means for James is going out and fulfilling mercenary contracts. Um, now, these contracts are interesting. Tell us, tell us about the mercenary contracts and, and uh, what kinds of things Jame and her fellow randoms get up to. Well, first of all, they need to um, get supplies for the winter. The Riverland is not able to support them. So they have to send out mercenaries to earn uh, payment for something. Um, What they're doing in the 10th book is that they are going back to their old paymasters, who are in the central lands, who use them as uh, agents to settle their own disputes. They can have sort of games or contests or even wars in which one side of the central lands fights another side of the central lands. Um, and the, uh, the Kenserath are caught in the middle having to not only obey their masters who are paying them, but also hopefully not slaughter each other. As they might be on both sides. Yeah, exactly. I mean that—that's what happens every single time. Yeah. Uh, it used to be that it was determined that they would not be forced to go into bloody combat, but that has been changed in this particular book because one of the highborn um, has betrayed the secret of the contracts uh, that prevented that from happening yeah so uh so james rides south to fulfill a contract and and these contracts um i i don't know um if they're meant to be magical but they have almost like a magical aspect to them because one of the things about the contracts is um james doesn't really know what's in it um as she rides south she knows who she's working for um 
And then she has some guesses. Some of those guesses turn out to be right. And then there are other things. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, she, doesn't, she doesn't really know what she's going into. Yeah. Nobody does. Yeah. So, um, you know, what are, what are some examples of the kinds of things Jim ends up doing on this ride south? Um, partly, well, there are a number of things that happen. One of which is that she discovers there is a, a strange presence in the central lands, a, a pale presence, as they call it, um, who turns out to, to be Geridan, who, who is the, her uncle, actually, um, who betrayed the Kenserath and is trying to support a cult of the deathless because he himself is scared to death of dying. Um, so she has to deal with him. Gosh, what else? Uh, they do. There's like a games, right? There's like a there's like a turn. Oh yes, yes. There are a couple of uh, the the central lands tend to have competitions with each others, by which they determine various roles. Um, in one case, it's whether a particular king is supposed to be able to invade a neighboring country and take it over. Uh, and this is decided by the fact that his Kendar will fight the Kendar of the other country. Um, there are at least two different forces coming together during the course of the novel. In one case, it involves also the native powers, the four, uh, because they end what the what the what one of the kings wants to do is to invade the country where the wolvers live and where the the uh, uh, the burnt man comes from. So that becomes a an issue of do you go into this hunting party into the depths of the forest? What happens if you encounter the depths of the forest with the wolvers and the burnt man and all the rest of it in there? Um, and James sort of tries to say, well, let's not kill each other each <laughs> other. Yeah. Um and there's a there's a great scene in 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 that bit where the history of the Kenserath is is recited. And so mm-hmm. uh, I said, hey, you could start reading in book 10. If you say, hey, I want to read what's hot off the presses. I want a physical book. This is what I want to read. You could start with this. Um, the glossary will help you figure out the unfamiliar terms. Uh, and, and you will find about in the middle of the book, basically this kind of poetic retelling of the backstory that should basically catch you up. Right, which was also repeat, repeated in previous books. So it's not new information. Um, it's just, okay, here are the scrollsmen telling this story uh, with the Wolvers interpreting their version of it. Um, 
and this is where they are right now. Uh, but yeah, these, these things have pre had happened previously as well. So it's not just one place. It was sort of a matter of where do I put that chunk of folklore uh, yeah. in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she also, I don't want to give away too many spoilers here, but she ends up <clears throat> kind of at the climax of the book being in involved in this sort of catastrophic theophany, uh, this, this divine appearance. Um, um, so, so Jame has a lot going on for her uh, in this novel. Like always. <laughs> so, um, so Tori, uh, Tori is uh, at, at home in the keep, right? Uh, ruling. Um, and, uh, and this is where we run into, you know, murmurs about discontent among the highborn possible kind of political moves against him. Uh Um, which, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because, uh, well, I guess to what extent do people realize that Tory is a Shanir and one of the three aspects of God. Like, do they, do they know this to the lords who are thinking about this? Um, I don't think they do. Yeah. I think they've pretty much brushed all of that aside and said, the Tyridon are never going to show up. We're on our own. We have to make things the best we can for ourselves, yeah. which in the case of several of the lords and ladies is to completely redo the Kenserath in a fashion that is going to destroy it. Yeah. And unfortunately, Tori is the head of a very small house. Um, it's, it's a question of how many allies can he rouse yeah. to maintain the traditional values of his society. Yeah. Or what personal charisma? can he exert right because his military force is not going to do it yeah yeah it, i mean he is the high lord and he does have a lot of charisma um yeah. he, do, he doesn't think about it that way but he does yeah um so this uh it sounds like this subplot is not over but it comes to a head of sorts in the book where he basically rides out to confront uh some of the other lords and and basically challenge them and you know i heard you're thinking this is it true it's kind of conversation um which intersects with kindry's subplot in the book right what happens to kindry in this book um kindry is in kind of a bad position he's uh He, he gets into a quarrel with his his lady. Uh, he tries to go to Jame to get advice. He gets caught by the the Kainaran, who are the bad people. Um, he has to figure out how on earth to be a healer in this situation where the person he's supposed to be healing, it's like healing Hitler. 
you know, how do you how do you deal with this person who's a monster? Um, and Tori has to eventually come into the situation and do some help to him. Um, he also runs into a, a very strange childbirth. <laughs> um, so he he has a very unpleasant time in this book. Yep. He does eventually come out all right, but he he's not having a good time of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think that's a pretty good kind of tantalizing setup for the description of the of the book. Um, anything else uh, readers should uh, should know about Deathless Gods or the series that we haven't touched on, PC? Um. Maybe what I mentioned in the previous interview that I didn't, for the first time, I did not entirely plot out this series, this story in, in, the, in when, I, when I was proposing it to Bain. Um, and so I, I floundered around for a while trying to figure out what actually was going on then I discovered exactly what was going on. Uh, and it was much better than what I'd expected. Uh, but it's not typical for me to do that sort of plotting. Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, what's next? It sounds like book 11, maybe. Is that already in the works? Are you? Is that one outlined or are you going to? That one I've outlined pretty thoroughly. Um, I'm having some trouble getting to work on it. Mm. I think I know what I need to do, but I'm not sure if it's because it's the last book in the series uh, or why I'm feeling so having so much difficulty working on it. But then each book, it seemed to be harder and harder to deal with. So I'm not sure. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older or something. No, I um, I think that's very reasonable. I mean, at each at each step, you've accreted another 100,000 words, right, of complexity. Um, and uh, so there's more to keep in mind, right? And as you're approaching the end, you know, you want to you wanna land like Mary Lou Retton. You want to land with your feet together. And your arms out <laughs> and not bounce, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And that takes some work. Um, I want very much to have this be a good ending. Yeah. Yeah. And then it sounds like maybe maybe other novels or short stories after that about the same characters. We'll see. Could be. Could be. There are definitely they definitely have a life after the end of this. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, where did my glasses go? Uh, hey, once again, uh, the novel is Deathless Gods, out now from Bain Books and Trade Paperback uh, and ebook. Uh, PC Hodgel, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra, Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. 
It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. His internal clock said 10 p.m., and it was time to go. Johnny had been of two minds about choosing a nighttime rather than an afternoon breakout. In the afternoon, there would have been people beyond the Tyler Mansion's walls, crowds for the two fugitives to disappear into if they got that far, witnesses perhaps to their deaths, and the mansion's significance if they didn't. But hiding in crowds made little sense if the troughs were willing to slaughter civilians in order to get the two of them. Besides forcing the troughs' outdoor weaponry to rely on radar, infrared, and light amplification for targeting might prove a minor advantage. Those were the reasons he gave Alona. One more, that the aliens might not risk letting them even get to the wall in broad daylight, he kept to himself. He was lying on his back on the table, hands folded across his chest. Ilona sat beside him, her knees pulled close to her chest, apparently contemplating the door. Ilona's inactivity wasn't an act. He'd quoted a 10.30 jump-off time to her. Whether or not the troughs could be fooled by so simple a trick, you would probably never know, but it had certainly been worth a try. Taking a deep breath, Johnny activated his omnidirectional sonic weapon. There was a tingle in his gut, a slight vibration as the buried speakers brushed harmonics of natural body resonances. Straining his ears, he could almost hear the ultrasonic pitch changing as the sound dug into the walls, seeking resonances with the tiny audio and visual sensors open to it. The full treatment was supposed to require a minute, but Johnny had no intention of giving the troughs that much warning. He didn't need to knock out the sensors permanently, but just to fog as many of them as possible while he made his move. He gave it five seconds, and just as Ilona began looking around the room with a frown, he lifted his leg slightly and fired. The upper hinge of the door literally exploded, scattering solid and semi-solid bits of itself in a shower to the floor. Beside him, Ilona yelped with surprise. In a single smooth motion, Johnny slid forward so that he could target the lower hinge and fired again. This shot didn't hit the inner sections quite as cleanly, and the explosive vaporization that had taken out the upper hinge didn't occur. Johnny fired three more times, adding his fingertip lasers to the assault, and within seconds the hinge was dangling loosely against the wall. Gripping the edge of the table, he hurled himself feet first at the hinge side of the door like a self-guided battering ram. The door creaked under the impact, displaced by a centimeter or two. Regaining his balance, Johnny jumped across the room, turned and tried it again, his hands providing a last-second boost from the table as he passed it. The table survived. The door, fortunately, did not. With a shriek of scraping metal, it popped out of its frame and sagged at an odd angle, held off the floor only by its lock mechanism. "'You said ten-thirty,' Ilona growled. She was already at the door by the time he got his balance, peering cautiously outside. I got impatient, Johnny returned, joining her. Looks clear enough, come on. Stepping past the ruined door, they headed out into a dimly lit hallway. Enhancers on full, Johnny scanned the walls and floor quickly as he led Alona in a quick jog. 
nothing seemed to be there. They were nearly on top of it when Johnny spotted the slight discoloration in the wall that indicated a disguised photo cell at knee height. Detector, he snapped, slowing to let Alona catch up. Pointing it out would have taken unnecessary time. Grabbing her upper arms, he swung her over the invisible beam and then jumped over himself. Too easy, he thought uncomfortably. Far too easy. He knew the troughs wanted him to get through their gaunt little life, but this was ridiculous. It stopped being ridiculous at the end of the hall. Johnny paused there, at the threshold of a large room. But neither a complete stop nor a full-speed sprint would have done him a scrap of good. Flanking the hallway exit were two quarter circles of armored troughs. Stepping back into the hallway would have been no more than a temporary solution. Shoving Ilona back into that modest protection, he bent his knees and jumped. The ceiling here wasn't as sturdy as the one back in Frere Complex's room C-662, the one Bai had first demonstrated on. But it was sturdy enough, and Johnny hit the floor with balance intact and only a minor snowstorm of shattered ceiling tiles accompanying him. Hit the floor, twisted, and as the trough lasers began to track, he threw himself spinning onto his shoulder blades. Bai called the maneuver a break, for obscure historical reasons. The trainees had privately dubbed it the backspin. Curled up in a half-fetal position, knees tucked almost to his chest, Johnny's anti-armor laser swept the line of soldiers, flashing instant death. Only three of the dozen or so soldiers escaped that first salvo, and they died on Johnny's second spin. The metallic clink of armor-clad bodies hitting floor had barely ceased before Johnny was back in a crouch, eyes darting around. "'Ilona!' he stage-whispered. "'Come on!' Peering into the hall, he saw her leap to her feet and trot toward him. "'Good Lord!' she gasped. "'Was all of that you?' "'All of it that counted. Which proved all by itself he'd been right about the troughs' plan. He should at least have picked up some light burns from that exchange. "'That door?' "'Right. Remember that it's a stairway.' Got it. Like the hallway, the stairs proved to be free of major threats. Probably, Johnny decided, whatever sensors it contained were designed to study his equipment immediately after use, perhaps looking for theoretical limits or emission signatures. Triggering his sonic again, he led Alona around the two photocells the stairway contained and braced himself for whatever he would find above. The trough's first try had been a straightforward attack. This one was only marginally more subtle. Stretched across the floor, between the fugitives and the room's only exit, was a three-meter-wide black band. Johnny sniffed, caught a whiff of the same smell he remembered from the net at the Volker plant. Glue patch, he warned Alona, searching the walls with his eyes. A vertical strip of photocells stretched from floor to ceiling at either end of the adhesive. Six almost-flat boxes adorned the walls beyond. Unlike the more permanent-looking photocells back in the hall and stairway, this trap had an air of having been hastily set up for the occasion. Ilona, for a change, was right with him on this one. "'So we jump and get hit by something while we're in mid-air?' she murmured tensely. "'Looks like it.' Johnny stepped to the side wall near the adhesive and extended his right arm. "'I'll try some simple sabotage. Get back into the stairwell, just in case.' His arc-thrower flashed even as she obeyed and he discovered just how badly he'd underestimated the troughed ability to learn. Across the room, one of the flat boxes abruptly disintegrated before a spinning mass that shot out directly toward him. 
the mass flattened as it came, its spin unfolding into a giant mesh net. He had no time then to regret having demonstrated his arc-thrower's range a few hours previously. No time to do anything but get out of the way fast. And his programmed reflexes did their best. Dropping him toward the floor, his servos threw him in a flat dive at right angles to the net's line of motion. But the room was too small, the net too big. And even as he somersaulted into the wall near the stairway door, the edge of the mesh caught his left shoulder, pinning him to the floor. Delona was out of her shelter like a shot. "'You all right?' she asked, hurrying toward him. He waved her away and twisted up on one elbow. Cutting the mesh would perhaps be simplest, but if the glue contained a contact soporific again, he didn't want to risk carrying a patch of it along with him. Bracing himself, he jerked abruptly, tearing the trapped sleeve neatly off at the shoulder. "'Now what?' Ilona asked as he scrambled to his feet. We give up on the subtle approach, get ready to move. Sequentially targeting the remaining five wall boxes, he raised his hands and fired. He was half afraid the attack would trigger the firing mechanisms instead of destroying them. But as each box shattered and the briefly lingering laser beam swept the coiled net behind, it began to look like the troughs had missed a bet, until he noticed the pale brown smoke rising from the burning nets. Hold your breath, he snapped at Alona. Stepping to her side, he grabbed her in a shoulder and thigh grip and jumped. Not simply across the adhesive strip, but all the way to the door at the other end of the room. A potentially disastrous maneuver, but the troughs fortunately had not hooked any more booby traps to their photocell strip. The door was closed, but Johnny had no intention of pausing to see whether or not it was locked. He landed on his left foot, his right already snapping out in a servo-powered kick beside the doorknob. The panel shattered with gratifying ease, and still carrying Alona, he charged on through. The room beyond was much smaller, and like the others he'd encountered so far, completely barren of furniture. It would have been nice to pause at the threshold and check for traps, but with expanding clouds of unknown gas in the room just behind, that was a luxury he couldn't afford. Instead, he took the whole five meters at a dead run, avoiding a straight-line path to the door opposite, but otherwise relying solely on his combat reflexes to get them through safely. And whatever the troughs had set up, they apparently were taken by surprise by his maneuver. Reaching the door unscathed, he wrenched it open and slipped through, dropping Alona back to the floor and slamming the door behind them. They were, as Johnny had expected, in the middle of a long hallway. Snapping his hands into firing position, he gave the place a quick survey, then focused again on Ilona. "'You okay?' The bruises from this are going to be interesting, she said, reaching around to rub her rear where he'd been gripping her. Otherwise, okay. I came in that way, second door from the end, I think. I hope you're right. It wasn't a trivial point. Troughts routinely sealed off interior doors in buildings they took over, and a wrong turn could put them into a section of maze Ilona knew nothing at all about. At least it was a hallway, and therefore if the troughts kept to their pattern so far presumably not booby-trapped. The breather would be nice to have. Okay, let's go. And with his attention on the walls, his assumptions firmly in mind, he nearly lost it all right there and then. It started as a humming in his gut, similar to that caused by his own sonic weaponry, and it was pure luck that they were nearly to a node of the standing wave when he finally woke up to what was happening and skidded to an abrupt halt. What? Ilona gasped as she bumped into him. Infrasonic attack, he snapped. The humming had become a wave of nausea now, 
and his head was beginning to throb. Hallway's a resonance cavity. We're standing at a node. Can't stay here, she managed, sagging against him and gripping her own stomach. I know. Hang on. There were only seconds, he estimated, before they were both too sick to move. And unfortunately, the troughs had left him only one option for a response. He'd hoped to keep at least one weapon out of their view on this trip, but with no indication where their infrasonic generator was located, his lasers were useless. Clutching the unsteady Ilona to his side, out of the direct line of fire, he activated his sonic disruptor and began sweeping the ends of the hallway. Either he was very lucky, or, more likely, the troughs had again set him up with an easy victory, because in barely four seconds the sonic beam had hit on the resonance frequency for something in the troughs generator. Gritting his teeth, fully aware the sonic hadn't been designed for spaces this big, Johnny held the beam steady as his nanocomputer increased amplitude. And abruptly, the nausea began fading. Within a dozen heartbeats, all that remained of the attack were weak knees and residual aches throughout his body. "'Come on, we've got to keep going,' he told Alona thickly, stumbling toward the door she'd pointed out earlier. "'Yeah,' she agreed, and did her best to comply. He wound up mostly carrying her anyway, a task that would have been impossible without his servos. Reaching the door, he pulled it open. The troughs had gone back to being unsubtle. This room, unlike all the previous ones, was almost literally loaded with furniture, and behind each piece seemed to be an enemy soldier. It occurred to Johnny in that first frozen millisecond that deviating from Alona's remembered path might well be disastrous, if for no other reason than panicking the troughed commander. But there was no way he was going to willingly face a room full of enemies if another possibility existed, or could be made. A single, untuned blast from his sonic was all he had time for before slamming the door to. With luck, it would jar them at least enough to slow any pursuit. Grabbing Alona's arm, he sprinted to the next door, the last one at this end of the hall. "'This isn't the way I came!' she yelped as he let go and tried the door. It was locked, of course. "'No choice. Hit the ground and yell if you see anyone coming.' His fingertip lasers were already spitting destruction at the door's edges, tracing a dashed line pattern that would yield maximum weakening in minimum time. Halfway through, he kicked hard at the door. Finishing it, he kicked again. With the second kick, he felt it give, and four kicks later, the panel abruptly shattered. Ilona right behind him, he ducked through. And it was instantly clear that they were off the path so carefully set up for them. No human-style furniture or equipment here. From floor to ceiling, the room was jarringly alien. Long, oddly-shaped couches lay grouped around what looked like circular tables, with hemispherical domes rising from their centers. On the walls were almost archaic-looking murals, alternating with smaller bits of gleaming electronics. Across the room, Johnny just got a glimpse of a troughed back-jointed leg as the alien beat a hasty retreat, and in the relative silence a sound heretofore conspicuous by its absence could be heard, the thin, ululating wail of a troughed alarm. "'Dining room?' Ilona asked, glancing around. "'Lounge. A minor disappointment. He'd rather hoped they would wind up somewhere his arc-thrower could be put to use. The control room for the wall defenses, for example. On the other hand—' "'Let's get going,' Ilona urged, throwing apprehensive glances at the ruined door behind them. The crowd will be on our backs any minute. Just a second, Johnny told her, scanning the walls. 
Troughts always put lounges and other non-critical facilities on the outer edges of their bases, and, half hidden by the murals, he finally spotted what he was looking for, the outline of a window. Well boarded up, of course. A dark sheet of chirelium steel, three meters by one, fitted precisely into the opening, leaving only a hairline crack in the otherwise featureless slate-gray wall. Unbreakable with even cobra weaponry, but if the designer had followed standard troughed building reinforcement procedures, there might be a chance of getting off this treadmill right here. Get ready to follow, he called to Ilona over his shoulder. Leaning hard into the floor, he charged the window and jumped, turning feet first in midair and hitting the window shield dead center. The panel popped neatly from its casing and clattered to the ground outside. Johnny, much of his momentum lost, landed considerably closer to the building. Dropping into a crouch, he activated his light amp equipment and looked quickly around him. He was in what had probably once been an extensive flower bed, extending most of the way out to where the stunted bushes and trees of an elaborate haiku garden began, the latter shifting in turn to a band of full-size trees near the outer wall. No cover until the trees. Johnny's rangefinder set the distance at about 52 meters. The wall itself, 30 meters further. Behind him came a noise. He twisted around, vaguely aware that the action hurt, to see Ilona jump lightly to the ground. That was one beaut of a kick, she hissed as she joined him in his crouch. Not really. The edges are beveled against impacts from the outside only. Any idea where we are? West side of the house. Gates around to the north. Never mind the gate. We can go over the wall just as easily here. The corner of Johnny's mind considered the possibility that the troughs had spy mics on them. First, though, he added for their benefit, I want to see if the house lasers are set to fire on outgoing targets. Still no sign of enemy soldiers. Moving to the former window cover, he hefted the metal for a quick examination. Chirelium steel, all right, about five centimeters thick. He had no idea whether it would do for what he had in mind, but there was no time left to find anything better. Bracing himself firmly, he gripped the panel on either side, raised it over his head like a makeshift umbrella, and with everything his servos could manage, he hurled it toward the distant wall. He'd never gone to the limit in quite this way, and for a long, horrifying moment he was afraid he'd thrown the panel too hard. If it cleared the wall and in the process ruined his pretense of ignorance as to the defensive lasers there. But he actually had nothing to fear. The panel arced smoothly into the sky and dropped with a crash of breaking branches into the middle of the distant patch of forest, a good twenty meters in from the wall. And it made the whole trip without drawing any fire. Johnny licked his lips, so the automatics would most likely leave them alone. Would the live gunners, who were undoubtedly up there, abstain as well? There was nothing he could do about that, but hoped that they were still relying on the wall itself to ultimately stop him. If they were, and if his plan worked. Ready for a run? he whispered to Ilona. Her eyes were still on the spot where the Kyrelium plate had ended its flight. Fridge and a half, she muttered. Um, yeah, I'm ready. Toward the wall? Right, as fast as you can. I'll be behind you where I can theoretically handle anyone who tries to stop us. One final look around. Okay. Go. 
She took off like the entire troughed war machine was after her, running in a half-crouched posture that offered at best an illusion of relative safety. Johnny let her lead him by perhaps five meters, enhanced vision and hearing alert for any sound of pursuit, but the Tyler mansion might have been deserted for all the response they drew from it. All lined up on the balcony to watch us slag ourselves, no doubt, he thought, recognizing as he did so that the strain was beginning to affect him. A few more seconds, he told himself over and over, the words settling into the quick rhythm of his footsteps. A few more seconds and it'll be over. At the edge of the forest he put on a burst of speed, catching up to Alona a few steps later. Wait a second. I have to find that Kyrelian plate. What? she gasped. Why? Don't ask questions. There it is. Not surprisingly, the heavy metal was undamaged. Johnny picked it up and balanced it like an oversized door in front of him, searching for the best and safest handholds. What? You... doing? Getting us out of here. Come here. Stand in front of me. Come here! She obeyed, stepping between him and the plate. Arms around my neck. Hold on tight. Now wrap your legs around my waist. Okay. Hold tight, whatever happens. Got it? Yeah. Even muffled by his chest, her voice sounded scared. Perhaps she had a glimmering of what was about to happen. Twenty meters to the wall. Johnny backed up another ten, getting the feel of the extra weight distribution as he gave himself room for a running start. Here we go, he told Ilona. Hang on. The whine of the servos was louder in his ears than even the thudding of his pulse as his feet dug deeper into the dirt with each step and his speed increased. Eight steps, nine steps, almost fast enough, ten steps. And an instant later his knees straightened to send them soaring upward. It was a move Johnny had practiced over and over again back on Asgard. A high jumper's roll, designed to take him horizontally over whatever barrier stood in his way. Horizontal, face downward, he neared both the top of his arc and the deadly wall. And an instant before reaching them, he let go of the plate now directly beneath him and wrapped his arms tightly around Alona. The flash was incredibly bright, especially considering that all he was seeing was the fraction of laser light reflected from the underside of the Kyrelian plate to the surrounding landscape. There was a rapid-fire cracking sound of heat-stressed metal against the brief hiss of explosive ablation. And then they were past the wall, and Johnny was twisting to bring them upright as they arced toward the ground. He almost made it, hitting at an angle that probably would have ruined both ankles without his bone and ligament reinforcement. Recovering his balance, he tightened his hold on Alona and started to run. He got halfway to the nearest building before the troughs recovered from their surprise and began firing. Laser blasts licked at his sides and heels as he zigzagged across the open ground. I guess you're going to get one more data point, he thought in their direction. And again pushing his leg servos to the limit, he took the last twenty meters in an all-out sprint. One second later they were around the building's corner and out of range. Johnny kept running, aiming for a second deserted factory a short block away. Any suggestions as to a hiding place? He called to Alona over the wind. She didn't even bother to raise her face from his shoulder. Just keep going, she said, and even with the jolting of their run, he could feel her violent shiver. He ran on, changing direction periodically, searching for a section of the city he could recognize. A kilometer or so later, he found a familiar intersection and turned north, heading for one of the underground's secure phones. They were still a block away when the sound of approaching aircraft became audible. 
Johnny estimated distances and speeds, decided not to risk it, and stepped to the nearest doorway. It was locked, of course, but after what they'd just been through, a locked door was hardly worth noticing. Seconds later, they were inside. Are we safe here? Ilona asked as Johnny set her down. Rubbing her ribs, she peered out the mesh-protected front window. Not really, but it'll have to do for the moment. Johnny found a chair and sat down, wincing as he did so. With the danger temporarily at arm's length, he finally had time to notice the condition of his own body, and it was clear he wasn't as unscathed as he'd thought. At least five minor burns stung spots on arms and torso, evidence of troughed near misses. His left ankle felt like it was on fire from the heat leakage buildup of his own anti-armor laser. One of the design flaws he realized that Bai had warned them to expect. Sore muscles and bruises seemed to be everywhere, and in several places he couldn't tell whether the clammy wetness of his clothing was due to sweat or oozing blood. We'll have to wait until the aircraft overhead settle into a pattern I can thread, but then I should be able to get to a phone and alert the underground. They'll figure out where to stash you while I go back to the mansion. While you what? She spun around to face him, her expression echoing the odd intensity in her voice. While I go back, he repeated. You didn't know it, but the only reason they let us go was to collect data on my equipment in action. I have to try and get hold of those tapes. That's suicidal, she snapped. The whole fridging nest of them will be running around by now. Running around out here, looking for us, he reminded her. The mansion itself may not be well defended for a while, and if I'm fast enough I may be able to catch them off guard. Anyway, I've got to at least try. She seemed about to say something, pursed her lips. In that case, you probably can't take the time to go call the underground either. If you're going back, you'd better do it right away. Johnny stared at her. No argument, no real protest. And suddenly it occurred to him he really knew nothing at all about her. Where did you say you lived? he asked. I didn't. What does that have to do with anything? Nothing, really. Except that I've just noticed I'm at a distinct disadvantage here. You know that I'm a cobra and therefore which side I'm on. But I don't know the same about you. She stared at him for a long moment. And when she spoke again, the usual sardonic undertone was gone from her voice. Are you suggesting I'm a troughed hireling? she asked quietly. You tell me. All I know about you is what you yourself said, including how exactly you came to be tossed in my cell. Sure, the troughs could have plucked a random citizen off the streets, but they'd have done a lot better to use someone who could be trusted to pressure me if I still refused to perform for them. Did I pressure you? No, but then that didn't prove necessary. And now you're encouraging me to go back alone, without even calling for underground backup forces. If I were a spy, wouldn't I want you to get me to the underground? She countered. I imagine the troughs would like to get a solid line on the resistance. And as to encouraging you to go back alone, well, I admit I'm no expert on tactics, but doesn't it seem likely that before your backup forces got organized, the troughs would be back inside and braced for the attack? You've got an answer for everything, don't you? He growled. All right, let's hear your suggestion on what I should do with you. Her eyes narrowed slightly. Meaning? If you're a spy, I don't want you anywhere near the underground, nor can I let you loose to tip off the troughs that I'm coming. Well, I'm not going back to the mansion with you, she said emphatically. I'm not offering. What I guess I'll have to do is tie you up here until I get back. A muscle twitched in her jaw. And if you don't, 
You will be found by the shop's owner in the morning. Or by the trough sooner, she said softly. The patrol's looking for us, remember? And if she wasn't a spy, they'd kill her rather than let word of their mansion HQ get out. Can you prove you're not a spy? he asked, feeling new sweat break out on his forehead as he sensed the box closing tightly around his options. In the next thirty seconds, don't be silly. She took a deep breath. No, Johnny. If you want any chance at all of hitting the mansion tonight, you'll just have to accept my story or reject it on faith alone. If your suspicions are strong enough to justify my death, then there's nothing I can really do about it. I suppose it's a question of whether my life's worth risking yours over. And when put that way, there really wasn't any decision to make. He'd risked his life for her once already. And enemy hireling or not, the Trofts had clearly been willing to let her die with him over the wall. I suggest you find a hiding place before the patrols get here, he growled at her as he moved toward the door, and watch out for aircraft. Outside, the sound of thrusters was adequately distant. Without looking back, he slipped out into the night and headed back toward the Tyler mansion, wondering if he'd just made the last stupid mistake of his life. It was a much slower trip than before, with aircraft and vehicles forcing him to take cover with increasing frequency the closer he got to his target enough so that by the time he finally came within sight of the mansion's outer wall, the basic tactical reasoning behind this solo effort was becoming shaky. Nearly three-quarters of an hour had passed since their escape, enough time for the Trofts to begin worrying about a raid and to have drawn their troops back to defensive positions. All around him, Johnny's enhanced hearing was starting to pick up a faint background of moving bodies and equipment all interspersed with the mandible clack of the Troft's so-called catter-talk as the aliens began barricading the approaches to their base. Forced at last to abandon the ground, Johnny slipped into one of the neighborhood's abandoned buildings, working his way cautiously to an upper floor and a window facing the mansion. With light amps at full power, he studied the scene below. And knew he'd lost. The Troft's were everywhere blocking streets, guarding rooftops and windows, setting up laser emplacements at the base of the wall itself. Beyond them he could see aircraft drifting over the far wall to join others parked around the mansion. The cordon meant the troughts were giving up any further hope of disguising their presence in the mansion. The aircraft implied they were preparing to abandon it. A few hours, a day or two at the most, and they would be gone, their tapes of his escape gone with them. Until then, the wall's defense lasers would have to be periodically shut down to let the aircraft in and out. With most of the armed troops outside the wall. An intriguing thought, but offhand he couldn't see any way to take advantage of it. With the troughed cordon strengthening almost by the minute, getting to the wall was becoming well-nigh impossible. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even certain anymore that he'd be able to sneak out without being spotted and slagged. I shouldn't have come back, he thought morosely. Now I'm stuck here until the ground clutter clears out. He was just starting to turn away when a building off to the left emitted a cloud of fire from its base and began collapsing into itself. The thunderclap of the explosion had barely reached him when the streets below abruptly came alive with the stutter flash of multiple laser weapons. The unexpectedness of it froze him at the window. But for now, the how of it would keep. He was really too exposed to risk drawing attention with his lasers, but there were other ways he could join the battle. He watched a few seconds longer, fixing the layout and specific trough positions in his mind. 
Then, moving back from the window, he set about collecting the odd chunks of masonry earlier battles in this region had shaken from the walls. Thrown with cobra accuracy, they could be almost as deadly as grenades. He was still busily clearing the streets of troughs when a second explosion lit up the sky. Looking up, he was just in time to see the red afterglow fading from an upper window of the Tyler mansion. An hour later, the battle was over. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to PC Hodgel for sitting down with us today, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Sharirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.